the history of personal computing. History, history, history. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another exciting installment of the History of Personal Computing podcast. This is our not-so-special Halloween episode. It falls on this day by sheer coincidence only, but we're still going to play along with it. Therefore, my name is Jeff the Werewolf Salzman, <laughs> and I'm hosting this time. Plus, I'm joined by my co-host, David Goolish. Oh, I don't think I've been called that since elementary school. <laughs> oh, am I bringing back bad memories? I, actually, I think probably kids that would make fun of my name would probably call me greenish or something no that's actually pretty cool i like it yeah so obviously we're not recording on halloween because we'll be enjoying the festivities that evening while i guess some people will listen to our podcast yes oh, well or maybe at least the next day from the halloween party yeah. uh, after the hangovers and stuff like that and you know what maybe next year we'll plan something special for halloween huh uh yeah you know that might be a good idea um we might be a week off but still well, you know, we have Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up, so we can see what we can do. That's true. A Christmas episode might be pretty cool. Everybody everybody remembers, you know, the computer they got for Christmas. Oh, actually, we probably should I, do an episode like I, that. I, huh? I smell a theme for you. Yeah. <laughs> How about that? I, I agree. I think that'd be a good theme. Hey, you know, we could prompt people to send in their stories. That would be a good one. Yeah, we can have a like a fireside chat episode. That would be good. Crackling fire sound in the background, you know. We could do all sorts of stuff post processing. In fact, this whole this whole uh, podcast episode was post processed. <laughs> We've planted a seed, everyone. So that's what a little less than two months. Come on, we make a great yeah. Christmas episode, yeah. holiday episode. I mean, sorry, there you go. holiday episode. It'll even come with a gift wrap. Anyway, <laughs> oh, what's me. up with you, David? I understand uh, you've been built a bit busy. Yeah, and uh, I think I'll start off with the third part of my little notes here since I just sniffled on the microphone. But I, uh, so I've been sick all this week, and uh, I'm only now – so we're recording on Wednesday evening, and, of course, the, the podcast will be out Friday sometime, probably morning, probably hopefully. probably still be sick, too, because those things last forever. But, uh, yeah, no, I'm getting better. I think I'm almost over it. So now I'll go further back what I've been up to. So not this week of Halloween, but la all last week we were on vacation, the family – and it was great. I wasn't sick one bit. So that that's the good news. So basically, we left. We were gone just about a week. And we went to uh, the Jacksonville, Florida area to visit my mother a little bit en route to Orlando. Then we spent, what, six nights in Orlando at, a, at an Orlando resort hotel. And that's actually the first time we have done that, geez, in our entire marriage, I think. Other than way back when we were in the Army, we didn't have children. <laughs> we took yeah, like it's so much easier. To we travel, took like yeah. thirty days off, you know, one time. Oh yeah, the whole year's worth of leave. Because we we're well, we were in Europe, and then you know, so we took the time off to come to the states and all that. But anyway, so that was nice. We had a full you know, almost a week in Orlando at a, a nice resort hotel, you know, with a nice pool area and all that stuff, and you know, did a little bit of the the real sitting by the pool and having a drink and eating and all that kind of stuff. But um, so on Monday. Uh, we went to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter and got to see the new expansion. If you're, if anyone's not aware of that, in 2010 they built the um, the initial Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Um, going blank here, Hogsmeade and the Hogwarts, you know, castle area in Islands of Adventure. And then this year, July, they opened up in the in the Universal side. They opened up uh, London and the King's Cross station, the train station, and then the Hogwarts Express that goes between the two parks and. Um, Diagon Alley and a small part of uh, Nocturne Alley. I'm getting this all right. And it was really great. So that was a lot of fun. That was one whole day on Monday. And um, and then we went to Magic Kingdom and Animal Kingdom. And I got to say, even though we like Animal Kingdom, I'm not, it's certainly not my favorite park, but it, it was it was nice and slow and relaxing on that day, yeah, which was I really nice. Uh, last time I went down to Disney World was in 2003, and I remember the Animal Kingdom was kind of Oh, it was slow. real new then. Uh, yeah, it was real new. But did you see the the lady who looked like uh, like she's a vine or something like she's on stilts and stuff like that? She moves no. around to to like uh, I guess uh, 
bongo music or, or whatever. Oh, we didn't see a parade, but I think, yes, I think it wasn't a parade. She was just like hides in the bushes uh. and then this music starts and then she comes out, does slow moving art style, you know, slow movements. And then she will disappear into another uh, bush. They may not do then... that anymore. Cause no, I hadn't seen her. Yeah, I wonder why it's <laughs> not like I almost stepped on her. <laughs> She was actually on four stilts. But I want to say I maybe life. saw that some years ago during a parade there. Anyway, moving along so that we did that and then got back Saturday uh, early evening this past Saturday. Everything's fine. Go to bed. And then I start waking up in the middle of the night and I'm just like sick as a dog since. Just a real bad head cold because I got a flu shot like a month ago. So anyway, so I've been recovering. And of course, they really need me back at work or I would have called in sick on Monday. So I've been at work every day all week. Yeah, that can drag you down. And that, so that's what's new with me. But I, I put in the since we're, this is our discussion area of the show. I yeah, while you were away, I got something. Yeah, so in the mail. Tell me about that. Well, and I don't think a lot of people are familiar with this book. And um, you know, and I've had it a while, and I had it on the shelf. So sometimes, you know, even things you like a lot, they get shelved, and you don't, you don't pull them out and look at them that often anymore. So I recently pulled it out, and I was telling you about it, and you hadn't really heard of it, but it's a book called Collectible Microcomputers by a friend of the show, Michael Nadeau. He actually wrote the introduction, uh, the prologue of my book, and uh, and I met him in person one time some years ago. So it's it's sort of a field guide you know, to personal microcomputers. Let's see, when was it published? 2002. So it's been out quite a while. And um, so check it out. We put a link in the show notes to Amazon. But one um, I, I sent you a copy. Yes. So I thought you really appreciate that. it. And plus, it'll help us out with our show, too. It's a oh, good yeah, it's reference nice. book. Not, not, not deep details, but it, it's really a, a wide assortment of personal computers. So yeah. it's your, your, your identification guide. Like if you, would, if you would find, if you were one of those people who can find like an all-tech flea market, you want this book with you because then you can point out by picture everything that you may see. But you um, know what? In fairness, he does do a quite a, I mean, just quite a bit of detail, really. It's sort of like, sort of following our sort of uh, guide as far as, you know, this might be, you know, in a museum and this would be just, you know, just enough, the most information on the most known ones and then just little placards maybe that might have a little bit of information on the other stuff. Yeah, you'll at least so, find out some basic details about everything. Yeah, some of them he does expound upon, um, but it's a lot of book to read. You know, yeah, a lot of information in there. A lot of good pictures. They're in black and white, but they're good quality, and it's it's a fun book. So check it out. And also, he has a web page, and uh, you know what? We don't have the link. We'll add the link to the show notes to his web page. But he has been actively upgrade updating this too. The information. So of course oh, the book is twelve years old, but he's actively volume up- coming out. Soon. Yeah, but he's actively updating the information. Uh, he tweets it out and on his site and everything. So, hey, what's so? What's you been up to since we last oh, spoke? It's been lazy for me the past couple of weeks, but um, I, I've been spending off and on time just preparing for Halloween party. My wife and I were invited to a Halloween party, and we decided to go as the '80s and on um, Halloween, I guess. On not Halloween, not a dumb yeah, question. I hope not an '80s party, or else I'd rent you know some old Nissan Sentra and you know drive there. <laughs> But um, I, I went through eBay and other places like Goodwill and stuff. I managed to acquire an authentic members-only jacket. I used to have one, but it doesn't fit me anymore. A, I got a pale yellow IZOD polo shirt, very authentic, uh, mirrored aviator sunglasses, and even a classic Sony model WM-F43 Walkman. Oh, that'd uh, be cool. It needed some fixing, but I got it fixed. Um, and I even created a mixtape to play in the Walkman, so... That's how I'm going to be dressed up as, I guess, a cool person in, from the 80s because that's something I've never been, even in the 80s, is a cool person. I have my polo collar turned up and Walkman on my belt and the headphones around my neck. <laughs> you may be listening to the mixtape if I don't like what the band's playing at the uh, party. And uh, my wife decided she'll dress up in a uh, Frankie Says Relax t-shirt that I got to make up for her. And she's going to be accessorized in neon-colored jewelry, fishnet, finger fingerless gloves. Can you believe those are coming Relax. now? Don't yeah. do it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I can't believe the the fingerless gloves are actually back. She didn't buy them at a costume store. She bought them at Five Below. Really? Which is like a cheap accessories store. Um, but she also has two Swatch watches, original Swatch watches. So she'll wear both of those because that's you know. And those are making a comeback, I believe. They they are, um, and she or also new has, styles. I mean, 
Yeah, they're changing some styles, but she still has some original ones, even though they don't operate. Oh, yeah, and I'll be wearing an old Armatron wristwatch, too. Um, and she'll have her original Trapper Keeper with her wow. carry that along. So uh, two cool kids from school. That's what we're going to dress up as. And, of course, uh, I don't watch the show a lot, but I've caught a few episodes. Uh, do you know what show I'm thinking of? It's a, it's a current show about the yeah. 80s. Um, the the Yeah, somebody told me it worked. Uh, uh, well, anyway. Uh, the Goldbergs. You know, probably talk to me right in the middle of something. The, the Goldbergs. That's it. Yeah, and that does a fairly good job for just the two episodes I saw. Does a fairly good job at least helping you remember the '80s, even mm-hmm. though there's a lot of mix and match of even sub eras of the '80s itself. They 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 kind of overlap things when and where they should have happened, but still, it it uh, it still gives you kind of a feel for the '80s. You know, hence the mixtapes. If you saw mm-hmm. the mixtape episode. Anyway, we better get moving here. Okay. <laughs> we want to keep this under an hour, right? Yeah. Uh, I'll continue on. Um, a review for everybody, first-time listeners and stuff. Uh, this podcast, The History of Personal Computing, is your bi-weekly virtual guide in audio to the history and development of arguably the single most important technological advancement of the last 40 years, the personal computer. We also have a companion website that contains the articles we feature for each machine, plus our show notes. We generally discuss systems in a date order by tiers, and tiers are in reference to the three tiers of personal computing, originally the desktop, portable, and handheld, but now they are more accurately include the laptop, tablet, and smartphone. We approach and describe each system like that of a museum tour guide, or we try to. We try to. It's the wild west of personal computers, right? <laughs> right. That's where we are now in our, our yeah. Well, recovering. Yeah. So, in the beginning was the Altair. Then came the MSI. Processor technology, Sol 20, Chromenko Z1, and a handful of others. These were the years before <laughs> the start of the consumer or even out-of-the-box computing. It was the pioneering frontier of personal microcomputing. You had to be tough in 1975, 1976, and most of 1977 to really get anything done with a small computer. You had to have a fast iron, <laughs> fast iron, yeah. nerves of steel, and a firm gut to try your hand at this game. That's funny. <laughs> Though you could get started reasonably cheap, you had to ultimately have some deep pockets too. Tell me about it. That is, if you wanted to create a machine that could do something, anything productive. <laughs> It was a romantic time in personal computing, and a time that is mostly lost to even those who study and celebrate the history of the computer. These were the micros, and they mostly used an S100 bus, 50-pin, or something similar. They all had heavy cases, and they all had big old power supplies. And you know what? We liked them that way. That's right. That's why we had muscles. <laughs> had to move these things around all the time because our wives wouldn't let, them, let us keep it in the dining room or the dining room table. Had to be on the floor, on the porch. No, <laughs> not really. And, and they gave us long cords, too. None of these three-foot cords. We had long cords to plug everything in, to plug our monitors in. You know, it's got to be at least six to ten feet of cord for every item. They, mm-hmm. they knew how to treat us back then with these computers. Well, speaking of computers, why don't you tell us about the, the first one on our show? All right, so we chose... Uh, so we, we chose to extend our discussion of these early microcomputers a little bit, just and can't cover everything, but we felt like we were sort of cheating, you know, the the number all the number of systems we didn't cover them. So so we're covering the Kremimco Z1 this time, as well as the Heath kits, which we're going to talk about, Jeff. And so I'm covering the Z1. And, uh, you know, in, in researching Kremimco, it is a really fascinating story and a fascinating company. So... In my research and what we talk about here, we don't talk about the computers too much, though we, we'll talk about them a little bit, I and mean, we'll talk more about them as we look at the links and stuff. So anyway, to start off, we're going to talk about the company. So Kremimco was founded in Mountain View, California by two Stanford PhD students in 1974. There was Harry Garland and Roger Mellon. It received its name in honor of their residence at Stanford University, Crothers Memorial. So, so Crow Mim Co, Co for company. That's it. Okay. And uh, Crothers Memorial was a dormitory reserved for engineering gra- engineering graduate students, and the two had already been working together on a series of articles for Pop Electronics magazine. The articles were for non-computer electronic hobbyist projects. In late 1974, 
Roger Mellon was visiting the New York editorial offices of Popular Electronics, and he saw the prototype of the Mitz Altair 8800. He was so impressed with it that he immediately changed his next flight to go to Albuquerque, New Mexico. There he met with Ed Roberts, president of Mitz, and Roberts encouraged Mellon to develop add-on products for the Altair. So Garland and Mellon's first product was called the Cyclops Camera Interface, and it was made for the Altair. Uh, then when they saw that there was no other convenient way to store software other than paper tape, the two went on to create what was called the Byte Saver. And the Byte Saver was a programmable read-only memory card that supported a resident program on it. So this allowed the computer to function immediately when powered up and without having to first manually load in a bootstrap program. Um, we take that for granted nowadays, you know, even using the term booting a computer. Yeah, so, like having the Atari basic cartridge or something, you know, right. the Atari 400 and 800. And this is where, you know, BIOS came in, you know, that would ready a computer to then load software. Of course, in the modern day, this just happens automatically. The computer, you know, readies itself and loads the OS. But back then, when you turn a computer on, it did nothing until you made it do something, which was usually bootstrapping, then loading basic or loading CPM or whatever. So they, when they discovered there was no easy way, so after they created the, the byte saver, then they saw, well, there's also no easy way to see what our Cyclops uh, camera image, you know, camera images stored in the Altair. There's no easy way to look at that. So they decided to design a graphics interface card, which allowed the Altair to interface with a color television set. This product was called the Dazzler, which was the first commercial graphics card available for microcomputers. By 1976, it seemed inevitable that Memco might create their own computer one day since they had already designed and sold most of all the separate parts that go into computers. So in August 1976, they in fact released their first computer, and it was called the Z1. The Memco Z1 came with 8K of static RAM already installed and surprisingly used the same chassis as the MSI 8080. So in other words, it looked just like an MSI 8080, other than it said Chromemco on it, uh, Z1. It, it does. It's really, really yeah. interesting. You can just slap a new sticker over it. And, and like uh, they actually bought out. those cases from MSI, which okay. was like across the river in San Mateo. So they went over there and negotiated and bought the cases. I found this in, in some one of the sites. Um, unlike the MSI, however, the Z1 featured a 4 megahertz Z80 microprocessor rather than the Intel 8080 as far as coming from the factory. You could have changed that out if you wanted to. But at the time, why would you? Because that would have been the superior processor they have. Yeah, people were starting CPM already. Um, the Z1 was followed later by the Z2 in June 1977, which featured 64K of RAM, RAM and the ability to run Kremenko DOS or CDOS, which was similar to the CPM operating system. The evolution continued when Kremenko essentially repackaged and upgraded the Z2 to produce the System 1, then followed by the larger System 2 and System 3. And in fact, they went on to make a number of other systems. Let, and, let me guess, System 4 and 5? <laughs> no, I think they started calling them something different by then. But they were around up until the almost the late 80s. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk about this here. So by 1983, and this was surprising, because no one's heard of this company nowadays. No, I, you know, I still don't honestly remember them. Kremimco, by 1983, Kremimco employed over 500 people and had an annual revenue of $55 million dollars. That's pretty good. And the company was still wholly owned by Garland and Mellon when it was purchased by Dynatech in 1987 as a supplier to their Color Graphics Weather Systems sub subsidiary. <clears throat> Excuse me. So this is interesting. By 1986, more than 80% of the major market television stations in the U.S. used Kremenko Systems to produce their news and weather graphics. So go back to YouTube and look at all those news articles from the 80s, the local news articles. Or Isn't that something? Videos. And, and you know, there's, I got, what, an 80% chance that <laughs> that was right. done with Chromemco. Now, I know around that same time, probably not 86, later than that, but obviously the Amiga came out in 85. And then I'm not sure at what point the video toaster came out. I want to say that's late 80s, you know. Yeah. So maybe I, that I started eating into the business. I just don't remember business. what year it came from. Um, yeah, 88, 89, I'm thinking, for the video toaster. There's a lot of interesting stuff. You can read up more about Kremenko and the, the two gentlemen, um, Garland and uh, Mellon. And uh, so they are very instrumental in the in, in the early, you know, there's more history to be told here. So they are very instrumental in a lot of the early parts of the computer revolution. Yeah, they created the first selfie machine. Mm -hmm. They had the camera. You could take your selfie as, as pixelated as it is. You can see it on the Dazzler. 
So some links about the Kremenko that we put in the show notes is one is to my Stan Veets History of the Personal Computer podcast, and it's actually episode one. And there's a chapter in that, I'm sorry, a segment in that chapter called The Night We Stopped Traffic. And it's, uh, yeah, this is the audiobook that I read. And it's it's a great story where Stan Veet uh, had got one of these Dazzler cards and he uh, he decided to put it into a, um, one of the computers and put a, a computer, a uh color television in the front window of his store and then it caused so much commotion of traffic and people stopping because they'd never seen this before that uh and and yeah i haven't read or listened to the story recently so i may get some of the details wrong but i think that the police or maybe it was the the police contacted the uh like the building owner and they finally had had him have to come up to the store and turn it off in new york city the the, the dazzler graphics aren't really that you know, no, fancy impressive. by today's standard, but you know what? Late seventies, yeah, no, yeah, late seventies, color, computer generated graphics of any kind, you know, just on a TV screen. It, it, it it's hard for some for the more recent generations just to fathom how cool that was. Yeah, you know, watching it for the first time. I mean, think about. Uh, I mean, thing that pops in my head is like uh, when you saw Star Wars maybe for the first time, and or Tron. You know, yeah, well, but Star Wars was earlier, so 1977. Oh, that's and then, true. And when you saw the graphics for like the Death Star and all that, when they were discussing it, the Rebels, you know, that's really seemed simple graphics. By the time it was like, wow, you know, the color uh, line art or whatever the the Death Star. I kind of remember Color Pong was pretty cool <laughs> when it came out. <laughs> yeah. So some other um, links is we also have a link to the original article on Build Your Own Dazzler. So it did start off as an article before it became a commercial product. And then I have a link to a really great site called s100computers.com and it's about Kremenko. And it's got a great picture of the Kremenko Cyclops and Harry Garland and Roger Mellon and just a lot of other good information. Uh, some pictures of the Z1, Z2 and the, what is that, the Z2D and some of their other, so they had also a System 300, System 3. Looks like a great site. So you said this was uh, co-written by Garland himself, one one of the founders. What's that? Oh, the other link. Yeah. Well, no, you mentioned uh, the Chrome Co on the S100Computers.com. Oh no, no, no. I'm just saying it's, okay. it's a good site where I got some good information and it goes into more detail about their history. But there, then I, I also put a link to two different YouTube videos, and so one is is demonstrating an original Chrome Co Dazzler, which is kind of neat. And then the last one is there are some of the Kremenko videos uploaded by Harry Garland himself. And he has some other videos, but if you click on this link, it gives you a, uh, what do you call that? Like a queue or whatever of some okay. of the movies relating. Playlist or something. Yeah, yeah playlist. YouTube of, playlist. Of uh, specifically some of the, uh, it looks like he's got like six that relate to the Kremenko's history and all that. And I didn't know these were there until I did a search. So I'm going to check them out further. Go set them up in my own queue. There's one about from 1979 and one about their history from 82, them talking about it. Here's one of their Christmas party, 1983. <laughs> that should be interesting. So Yeah, that color graphic displays in 1983. Um, yeah. Draw electronic Christmas trees and stuff. So anyway, any questions? Uh, <laughs> wow, I, you had a million of them. Um, I know they developed a lot of other products too, leading up to the computers. So I think I had one question earlier. No, I think I covered that already with the uh, the camera part of it that they created. It's just fascinating. They were able to create basically a video or an image digitizer mm -hmm. that worked on those systems. So that was... I'd say the truth until I did this research on this for the show. I didn't realize that the uh, Dazzler did as much as it did. And that it actually evolved into, uh, you know, the other products that they use to do the graphics for the news and all that. Yeah, and after looking at the circuit, the the schematic diagram, and then that uh, Bill Drew and Dazzler article, it's all done mostly with discrete components or, or, or with basic integrated circuits. It's just, you know, they made a lot of very complex uh, video. You know, they put a lot of video capabilities into it out of, you know, a large handful of logic chips. So it was pretty nice that they can do that. And, you know, I guess if somebody really wanted to build their own, they could. The plans are there. They're, you know, ages old. But, you know, that doesn't change. It doesn't, you don't have to worry about it changing. I think you can still get a lot of the 74 LS series um, logic chips that it was built with 
That would yeah. be neat to see if anyone has, has tried to do that. I don't know. I have I have a whole lot of uh, parts, the, the 7400 series parts that I pulled from boards over many years. I wonder if I have enough to build it myself. Now, I, I can build that, and then I have to build an S100 bus system to go underneath it. <laughs> I think you have to do it. Yeah, I should. Should be too hard to have the circuit board design too. There's a lot of companies out there which would just make the circuit boards. So anyway. now you're going to take us along the way into the Heathkit world. Yes, I was actually a when I got into electronics, I was I favorited Heathkit. The first two, or one of the first three projects I built. I mean, two of the first three projects I built were Heathkit projects. So that's why I wanted to work on this one. Um, anyway. Heathkit, for those who don't know, was a long-established electronics retailer specializing in build-it-yourself electronic kits. Now, in the wake of the Altair's original move to create a home computer for consumers, Heathkit believed that they, too, could capitalize on the homebrew personal computer market. The result was the Heathkit H8 computer, introduced in July 1977. The H8 is similar to other S100 class computers in the sense that it used an Intel 8080 CPU, had a backplane expansion bus, and CPM was commonly used on it. But the similarities ended there. Heathkit's engineers noted the need to correct some major flaws in the S100 bus design. For example, like having the 5 volt and ground pins right beside each other. Um, you know, uncorrected, it was possible to short the power supply if a card was inserted crooked or if a piece of metal dropped hmm. in the S100 slot at the right position. After all, this was the 70s. You can't have one of those low-hanging disco chains getting in the works <laughs> and shorting out when you're bending over to insert an S100 card. Yeah. You know, or or your gold, gold necklaces. Ooh, it's electric. Um, dynamite. Heathkit's <laughs> solution to the S100 bus issues was to cut the S100 bus by half and create a 50 pin bus see see told yep. you that's right <laughs> david was right a 50 pin bus and it was called the benton harbor bus named for the town in which the heath heathkit corporation was located you know not not the bus that's going to benton harbor michigan um 10 <laughs> go ahead you were saying something oh no i was just laughing okay. <laughs> 10 benton harbor bus slots were implemented in the h8 design um the front panel itself was actually inserted into the first slot, making the H8 an almost completely modular computer. Because of the separate CPU board, nothing could technically stop a third-party company from creating a new front panel assembly, which became a plug-in replacement for the original H8 panel. Now, consumers bought the H8 as a kit for $375 in 1977 money. And like any other... Heathkit product, they received a well-documented set of assembly instructions. But unlike a typical Heathkit product, the kit wasn't a complete puzzle of loose parts that you had to solder together. The owner did assemble the power supply, they assembled the front panel and the case, and it required some soldering of electronic components. But the CPU itself that got inserted into the, one of the slots came fully tested and pre-assembled on its own board. Which that's interesting that they chose to do it that way. I guess maybe they felt to do it that way was to save themselves a lot of support headaches. Most likely, and maybe some people wouldn't buy it if they had to put all those sensitive, expensive parts together mm -hmm. onto a board. And Heathkit was doing that with their TVs at the time too. They, you get module boards that were pre-built. Oh, really? You still sort of build your TV. Huh. Uh, but you wouldn't do it all at the part level. But that's, you know, kind of the way it was. Anyway, so you built your H8, uh, and what you had was a finished computer that was basically an idle-running CPU, since the kit did not include any RAM. See, now that's weird. It is weird. Um, but the owner was expected to buy at least one RAM card. And since the bus <laughs> system was somewhat proprietary... The $140 H8-1 4K RAM board was the only choice to get started with. Yeah, you had to buy it. Yeah, that board was needed if the user was to get any usefulness out of the computer. Now, once you have all that set up, once you spent your $375 and your $140 and you have it all together, you can program the H8. But programming the H8 was similar to single board computers like the Kim 1, 
or those having an LED character display and a numeric keypad for entry. There was only a 16-button keypad that was on the front of the H8 computer in which the user entered CPU commands directly in octal format. Now, octal is a rather obscure mode of data encoding. Um, the Altair and MSI used binary value representation with a series of single LEDs on their control panel. Uh, users would flip switches on, on their Altair or MSI to create binary numbers to interact with the computer. It's a more natural communications, raw but natural. Um, computers like the Kim 1 used a more popular hexadecimal values requiring 8-bit input in the form of two characters consisting of the digits 0 through 9 and the letters A through F. Um, on the Kim 1, CPU commands are entered with values like 80A8FF. Um, but Octal was a number set that was limited to only the digits of 0 through 7. There was no 8, 9 um, in the Octal number range. So en entering any one of the 8-bit values into a memory location required up to three number presses instead of two. And I have no idea why Heathkit chose the rarely used octal format. Maybe they wanted to be different. Um, and, and, and display to the user. The H8 display even had three sets of three seven-segment LED displays. It had a total of nine seven-segment displays. So three, then another three, then another three uh, for the output. And this was arranged as split octal, where the entire memory address range was broken down into two three-character octal numbers, and, and then you had a third set of three, which was your, your data values that you would input. It was, it's just rather confusing at the time, and you know, even more so today. It's kind of tough to even explain it. However, if you spent $110 for the H8-5 serial and cassette interface board, then programs could, be, could at least be loaded from external storage sources, saving wear and tear on the keypad, and minimizing, greatly minimizing, the need to remember octal-based CPU commands. Now, if you wanted a truly interactive home computer experience, all that was needed was a terminal display. So open up that wallet. Another $530 later, you could wow. have the H9 terminal directly from Heathkit to complete the experience. The fully decked out H8 systems could be bought as a full combination package, uh, saving the consumer a few hundred dollars over buying all the parts separately. So basically, you can get a full set of everything we described so far as a kit or as a set price for about $1,300, as if it was compared to a desktop computing solution that we're using today with a CPU monitor and storage capabilities. So to really get started well, if you wanted a fully interactive computer, the H8 may have been sold at $375, but really you would have to spend $1,300 at the time to get something that was just going to do stuff for you. Hmm. And I think, I guess, a lot of that, the way it was programmed in that octal format and what you had to do to expand it led to, um, and we have a link here to um, a website that talks about the love-hate H8 relationship uh, for the H8 computer. You, you got to love it for what it is, but at the same time, it can, you know, make you pull your hair out. And for those who did buy the kits or own the kits or own the finished product because they got lucky on eBay, we have a link to the Society of 8-Bit Heathkit Computerists. So, you know, there is support out there for you. Did you ever have an H8, uh, <laughs> uh, David? <laughs> yeah, um, I did it a long time ago. And um, I don't think I had to buy it either. I think someone gave it to me. And um, it was in great condition. So the person had bought it and used it for many years. And then it sat up for a long time. And uh, it never worked for me, though. So I never... And I think it had some issue it needed to be worked on. And I, I never powered it up or tried anything because I knew it needed work. And so I eventually, yeah. I, I gave it to someone else to, to, to fix it. Because I well, just was above my head trying to you know fix it. But it was... It was a shelf decorative neat thing for a while for me. Oh, it looks great. It's a nice little, you know, this is the 70s of computing, and it just gives you that, you know, that look you could use it in a B horror movie um, if you wanted to, and if you can get any of those displays to do anything. But one thing I do um, find interesting about the H8, the way it was designed as, over an S100 system, is the power supply is rather simple, and it's unregulated. Uh, whereas an S100 bus system, most of them are regulated to provide a clean 5 volts and stuff to the bus system. But the H8 
did not have a regulated power supply. It had a it had a beefy one, but it wasn't regulated. Each of the cards you put in had to have its own voltage regulators. Wow! So all, all the oh, regulations yeah. happened on the board. I think I, I remember hearing about that before. I don't know if there's any good thing or bad thing one over the other. I guess if the regulator goes out in an S100 bus system, it can blow all the cards out at once if it if it went bad the wrong way. Whereas having on board on card regulators, if the regulator go, regulator goes out, you only have that one board that you have to contend with for any problems that may occur, where the other ones would still be you know, running clean. Okay, well, that's enough about the uh, H8. We'll get back to that shortly with my eBay picks. But for now, let's go with David's eBay picks. What do you? What have you found for this episode? I found two good ones. Let's see. First is, let me get over there. This is one that sold, and the only one that sold recently. And then we'll cover that there's actually a few listed. So this is a rare... Uh, it's, of course, it's rare. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, it, like when people put rare in there. The only thing uh, this one doesn't have is the L zero L at at K look. It was a rare Kremenko Z one early S one hundred personal computer, nineteen seventy six computer. And, you know, and I don't think I've looked for these very often, so it was a really interesting exercise to actually look for these for once. Rebadged MSI. That, yeah, right. It's like it's like what Radio Shack did with Texas Instruments calculators, and what Sears did with. Uh, um, you know, a lot of their Atari and Intellivision products, mm -hmm. they just, it looks exactly the same, maybe some slight color differences, but they slap their name on it. But that kind of it makes it pretty neat. And this is a, a nice looking one, sold for $1,900 on the 8th. And it says, from an estate sale, it says, With imagine my surprise. Wow. Find this old CPU. Outside looks very good. All keys intact. Front panel looks good. Graphics on front look good. Plugged it in and all the lights came on. Fans started running. It just hums along. That's about all I know about it. And, and then pictures. erased all his magnetic tapes within 10 feet. Yeah. <laughs> and then it, it looks amazing. Yeah. Yeah. He's got some, uh, some uh, information pulled from, I think the site I linked to and a little bit more information. Oh, look, he did. He pulled this from that, that, the, uh, the one site I linked to the S 100 computers. Cause it says, and the MITS Altair 8800 begat the MSIGHT 8080 and the MSIGHT 8080 begat the Kremenko Z1. So that is, so there you go, about $1,900. And my other link is basically a link to, let's see if it works properly, doing the search Chromemco, and it's going to find all the active, at the time you click on it, all the active Chromemco auctions going on in vintage computing. So as of this moment, there are 10. And um, one is a Byte Saver card. But actually, okay, yeah, one's a Byte Saver card. And then here's a rare... Kremenko System 3 S100 computer with ZPU, Byte Saver 2, and memory for $1,800. Buy it now. So you can get a lot of parts for it still, but it's still nice to be able to find the original unit first so you at least have your S100 system to get started. And here's a uh, rare Kremenko Z1 S100 computer loaded with boards for $3,239. Yeah, out of my price range. So they're, they're asking for a real premium for that one. And here's a 3102 terminal with keyboard that powers on for 900 bucks, Kremenko. And here's a Cyclops S100 board set with manual and original PE article. Holy grail, it says. <laughs> 1619. And then here's a, this is an MSI 8080. Okay, more, it says it's related to Kremenko. Okay, these aren't part of the regular. So there you go. So wow. I think it's fair to say that a, you know, good working, good quality Z1 is worth at least around two grand, maybe. Yeah, I'm going to have to, you know, if I can save up my money by the time the next VCF rolls around, which I'm going to go to, um, I'm going to start one? keeping an eye on it, on any S100 machine that I can get cheap enough. That That's, if I can just get one S100 machine, I'm pretty good to go. Um, so maybe I'll have to start to uh, keep my eyes open, find something. Even if it needs fixed, I know I can do it myself. Anyway, so I, what do you I, got? I got H8 stuff. Um, I have a, <laughs> and I took it out of the name, the rare uh, vintage Heathkit H8 computer from 1978. So wow, I look at that too. It's a good price. It it is a good price, um, and it sold not too long ago. And that was the only one that that sold um, on five bids, five hundred dollars. So that's pretty fair. Um, 
let's see the pictures on it. There wasn't too many pictures, I don't recall, unless wow. I'm thinking of the wrong auction. Uh, no, there was a lot of pictures, and it's it's in really good shape. Um, like six pictures, yeah. Yep, a lot of a lot of uh, model number stickers on the back, but I guess that that this shows that you can get an H8 for a you know a low price, but you know it's it's not S100 stuff. It's cool for what it is. If I found this for 150 bucks and I had the spare money to do it, I would buy it for 150 bucks. I don't know if I'd pay 500 personally, but I'm yeah. not saying that it's not worth 500. It's just it's not worth 500 to be put into my collection, mm-hmm. um, right? But it is it is a nifty little. Uh, device and just to give you an idea of some the pricing is really weird on this um my next item is the heathkit h8 z80 cpu board this is just the board itself this is what would have i guess come pre-built with the kit that alone i don't think it's sold but i noticed that a lot of boards for heathkit h8 are actually near the price of what h8 sells yeah it's like it's amazing. It's like the parts are hard to find because of that custom that Benton Harbor bus. I mean, you're you're kind of stuck with that. Well, I will say though, this particular board is being sold by Vintage Computer Museum, which, you know, the person this seller, I guess, you know, that tests them and they're you know it's in great top shape, but you know this this particular seller does get a premium for everything. And I like the the wire wrapping on the underside. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's something else. It, that doesn't like say unshielded. Nothing does. I have to send you a picture, you know, and I'll have to share it with our audience, I guess. But I have one S100 board I've saved all these years, and it was all a handmade. And I listen to Thomas. I give a talks. So I show it to people, and I need. I guess I need to take a picture and show you. And it was all hand wire wrapped. And I think you'd be really impressed. It's, it's, it's more impressive than that one. Yeah, I, I'm familiar with wire wrap. I just never did any myself, but I know it really takes some patience to do so. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's impressive. I mean, that's impressive too. But and as I segue to the listeners, guess what we have this time around? Look at that. Hmm. What we do we have? have? Listener feedback. Oh yeah, some, there is somebody out there who listens to us. Uh, actually, at least two people that listen to us uh, that we know of. We can verify that. <laughs> we need to get more listener feedback, but it's nice to get what we got. I'll read the first one. Um, we got here, okay. uh, from a, and, and I know I'm going to get the name wrong here, but I'll try my best from Theo Caragiris or Caragiris. Yeah, I think that's probably um, closer, right? And, and we're going to kind of read this feedback verbatim. So, um, take it in context the way, the way it was written from and to, um, so Theo says, apologies if this has been mentioned already, but I've just been listening to episode three of the History of Personal Computing podcast, and I heard you guys talking about the Altair 680 and S100 cards. The Altair 680 is not compatible with S100 boards. And yeah, I think we we kind of figured it out too, but it's, you know, we love this feedback, so keep it coming. You know, we will admit when we're wrong and we're told that we're wrong. Uh, that's not going to be a problem. Hmm. And But he does mention he he writes on they look the same but the standard is different and he provided an article to retrotechnology.com uh, i guess a restoration project for an altair 680 and yeah that was done with um what was it the 6800 cpu i think is yeah what right found. right so yeah it it looks like it and it's the input the user interface is similar enough it's just the, the whole behind the scenes is different so you have to program it with with a different cpu in mind hmm no, that's good information. Yep, good information. It, it's a nice little link he added there. And while well, I'm speaking of links, he he um, he tells us yeah, it's a great show, very interesting topics. Thank you very much, Theo. And tells us to keep it up, and that's what we want to do. He is a collector from Australia, and he gives his website. We'll be glad to mention it here at www.tkc8800.com, and we'll have that link in our show notes. Okay. And go ahead with the... Uh, so yeah, now a rather long, and uh, I think I'll mostly read it verbatim, but we can try to... That's why I left you, because you're, you're the one with the throat and everything. I'll let you read <clears> that <throat> one. Yeah, and I hope I'm not, I'm not sounding too bad. I'm no, you're Trying not fine. to sniffle too much and all. So this is from Mike, and you know, Mike, I hope I don't mess your name, last name up. Perigio? I'm not saying it right. How would... I, I see that as Perigio or Perigio. 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 Yeah. Oh, Mike, I'm sorry. 
<laughs> anyway, we're going to print your name correctly. So, And thanks so much for writing, so let's go for it. So he says, firstly, episode three, the problem was this. When David questioned the portability of CPM, Jeff asserted that it could be compiled for each system. The problem is that in the 8-bit era, CPM was not compiled for other processors like the 6502. CPM was written for the instruction-compatible 8080 or 8085 processors and would run on the Z80, which included the 8080-85 instructions as a subset of its own instruction set. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, my Commodore 128 had a Z80 processor, and I think that's what it ran at CPM off. I think that's what I was basing it off of, but he's right. You know, CPM was available for 6502, well, for other systems, but it had to somehow be either recompiled or they had to have a Z80 card to work properly, like like the uh, Microsoft soft card for the Apple. But anyway, I'm probably getting ahead on, on his writing, so I'll let you continue. Okay. Because CPM popularized the use of the BIOS, which allowed it to present a consistent program hardware interface when run on a range of machines, the programs as sold were binary compatible and could be loaded directly to any CPM system. Other processors could not run those programs and had to resort to additional hardware, oh, resort to additional hardware, which included an 8080 compatible secondary processor, such as the Z80 plug-in card for the Apple II. Oh, there I did get ahead of it. Okay. Which was the soft card, which was Microsoft's first hardware product, by the way. It is the reason why the Commodore 128, C128 had two CPUs. Okay, yep. There'll be some links here that he gave. Uh, on to episode four, which was what, last show, when I heard you were going to cover single-board computers, I merely wondered if you would include the Apple One, AIM-65, Kim, and the ELF, etc. I was initially impressed to hear you list them, then disappointed to hear that you were excluding them. <laughs> but <laughs> we, we, We're fickle. <laughs> I was extremely surprised and very glad that you went for a UK machine. And as we mentioned, we will cover the Apple One somewhat when we get to uh, the Apple Two. You know, so in that case, we'll kind of cover the Apple series. Yeah, it was series. classified slightly different. It has its own pinnacle in history. You know? Yeah, and, um, you know, again, can't cover everything. We're trying to get the most significant. And some machines are more significant to others. You know, to some people, even a, a lesser significant machine could have been very significant. But anyway... So NASCOM was the UK's equivalent of those US SBCs. And yes, Jeff, you did miss out if you didn't encounter them at the time. For those of us hobbyists that were lucky enough to be in the first phase of computing, computers were just an exciting new branch of electronics in the same way as radio, television, robotics, etc. I have always considered that the NASCOM one was like an Apple one, and then NASCOM 2 like a caseless Apple II, evolving from a basic CPU board to the heart of a system with built-in interfaces. Great comparison there, yeah. Even in the UK, NASCOM was a never was never a well-known name outside of electronic enthusiasts. The Commodore Pet and the Apple II were already available for those that could afford them. At the hobbyist level, that the NASCOM faced competition from the Ohio Superboard and its UK equivalent, the CompuKit UK101. And he gives a link to that. So this is great information for those of us, you know, in the, our, our biased Americana. <laughs> lifestyles. Exactly. It's more than just the United States around here. <laughs> Your hesitation in calling NASBUG an operating system was justified as it was just a monitor program similar to that on other SBCs, not so much an operating system as a way of manipulating memory to enter and debug programs. And this is just good. It's just good for those of us who aren't necessarily techie either, just to understand the nature of computers before what we all take for granted, like booting up and loading operating systems and all this sort of thing. As a newly employed youngster, even these systems were all out of my price range, so I started with the MK14. That's Microcomputer Kit, not Mark 14. From Science of Cambridge, later renamed Sinclair Computers LTD Limited. That also came with a machine monitor program, which was a port rewrite of the one written for the National Semiconductor Intro Kit Dev Board. Even had a version of BASIC ported to its CPU sharing brethren. And there's a good link there. And in fact, he sent a bunch of links so he has a MK14 uh, Flickr Picks page. He has a page from Paul Robson, Robson and, uh, yeah. about the MK14. And then he has some links about competitors of the time for these machines. So uh, the Acorn System 1, the Acorn Eurocard Systems, and then the Tangerine Micro Tan 65. So Excellent this is a, information. Yeah, really interesting stuff to look at. Ones that, you know. At least in the perspective of single board computers, yeah. Yeah. And those of us not as familiar with English systems or UK systems. 
And but uh, they type on the left hand side of the keyboard, don't they? <laughs> the, you mean the wrong side? Oh. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> uh, okay, darn it. I'm going to call it a Z80 from now on. Then, then Sinclair released a ZX80, and nothing was ever the same. Oh yeah, that that started some things that that created a big scuttle. But well, and we're yeah. we're quickly working our way to the trinity systems of 1977 which nothing was ever the same there either depending on your perspective but you know once the out of the box consumer machines came into play yeah things changed dramatically and it continued to change excellent stuff and i like to thank uh theo and theo yep theo and mike sorry i I actually had to scroll up to read the names again um Theo and Mike, thank you very much for your input. Um, very good information. It gives me something to do in some of my downtime to read some of these links and, and look at them in in perspective with some of the other UK products, as, um, as David had mentioned. Meanwhile, this is, uh, I think we probably reached our hour, didn't we? Yeah, I think we're doing just right. Okay. Then what we'll do is... Um, I sniffled through it. You, you sniffled it. You did, you did a wonderful job there, David. You, nobody can tell, and I know you can edit all that stuff out anyway. So, <laughs> so whoops. Uh, if you're listening to this during your Halloween party, get back to the party, please. But before you do, send us uh, some candy. Send us some candy. That's right. Eye candy. Send us your pictures. <laughs> no, we'll take candy in any form. Um, but, but listen out just a little bit longer. We'll talk to you about our. Our next show and um, show six, we're getting there. We're almost at two digits. Yeah. Uh, show six will be released on Friday, November 14th. We'll be covering the North Star Horizon and the Vector Graphic Vector One. Find our evolving guide and all show notes at historyofpersonalcomputing.com. Send feedback to feedback at historyofpersonalcomputing.com because we really would love to receive your email or audio comment. So, let me repeat that feedback at historyofpersonalcomputing.com. And I know that we've gotten some email, Jeff, about we need to add that to the site. I already did. Oh, it's cool. It's there now uh, on our, the right-hand column at the very bottom are all our social media links now, including uh, a link to send email. But, you know, if you if you email either one of us, too, that's okay. Yeah. It's a link to – it's a mail-to link, so it'll pop up your default email or it won't open up a screen to, you know, to email off the website so it's a traditional style email link, um, but it, it it works. I've tried it already myself. I send it send an email <laughs> to myself. Um, please send us your high quality photos. That's that eye candy we were talking about of the machines that we've covered. If you have your own pictures, please send it to us. We are looking please. forward to featuring them on on the on the site. Do I have to get down on our knees and ask for this stuff? <laughs> for God's sake! Um, lastly, tell someone about us, please. Uh, we. Write a review on iTunes or help us spread the word with Facebook, Google Plus, or Twitter. Uh, perhaps you're in a specialty discussion group. Tell them. And that's going to do it for this time. And have you hugged your old computer today? Please I, do. I, I hugged the bit out of mine. <laughs> oh, I had one last comment. And one last oh, thing to add. It? It'll be in the show notes, but Michael Nadu's, uh, I hope now I hope I'm saying Michael's name right. Is, uh, is is Classic Tech is the name of his blog where he's adding more information to the content of the book. So there's a link in the show notes, classictech.wordpress.com. And we'll get that in there. It's probably one of our busiest ones ever. Oh, yeah. I'm getting a text message from my wife. Uh-oh, it's time to go for all of us. See you next time. See you next time. Halloween party. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.